Hello listeners and welcome again to another episode of 177 Nations of Tasmania. In this episode I'm talking with Adele who was born in Iraq. And now to do Adele's life story justice would probably take a lot longer than what I can fit into this little podcast episode. But nevertheless I've attempted to give you some of the key moments in his remarkable tale. Now Adele was born and raised in Baghdad and his father was a Palestinian refugee, his mother Iraqi. Now this is a story of both good fortune, of struggle, of dark moments and moments of humour, and there's even a touch of romance. You will hear about Adele's passion for justice, particularly for the rights and the dignity of the Palestinian people. And there's also a clear thread of identifying with and supporting underdogs, which will lead to a perhaps unexpected connection with acclaimed AFL football coach and broadcaster David Parkin. Hopefully this has aroused your interest enough. So I'll tease you no longer and let Adele tell you his story in his own words. My name is Adele Youssef. I was born in Baghdad to a father that's Palestinian uh, from Haifa and a mother that's Iraqi born in Baghdad. And so how did your father come to be in Baghdad? In 1948, Israeli armed militia fighting units attacked the village. They were farmers. They, they picked olives and grew wheat and vegetables. And they killed uh, many of them, uh, destroyed the village. And my father's family ended up refugees. They were turned from people who were self-sustaining into people who needed food, shelter and assistance. And was it possible for him to be accepted immediately in Iraq or was it a process? It's an interesting story. Um, the, the Iraqi viceroy was visiting refugees in Jenin. When they left Haifa, they walked out with the shirts on their back. So they mm -hmm. were really, and it was winter. It was really cold. Many people died on the route. You can well imagine large farming families. They didn't have cars. They didn't have they, they they carried what children they could. Those children they couldn't carry, they left behind. So they ended up in squalid conditions in Jenin, which is a, a town in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the Iraqi viceroy was visiting Jenin, and he invited 300 families to Iraq. My grandfather put his hand up, and that's how my father, at 10 years old, ended up in Baghdad. And so what was your early years in Baghdad like? What was, what was the environment you lived in? I was very privileged, actually. When my, my father was at marrying age, they don't give spouses to refugees because they have no passports. They have no nationality. Okay. So, but my mother fell in love with my father at university. It was a love story. Right. And so her father, my, my grandfather on my mother's side said no. You cannot marry a refugee. It's impossible. But she persisted. And she married my father in spite of my grandfather. And she was an avant-garde for her time mm. in relation to women. She drove a car when very few women could read and write. Yeah. She, was, she was one of that group. of, And there was a few of them in Iraq at the time that were highly mobile, highly literate, and very active in the social and political life. And that's how I had a privileged life, because I grew up outside of the refugee camp. I grew up in a home. Of course, the house was not in my father's name, because he mm -hmm. had no passport, no nationality. Everything was in my mother's name. Right. As an Iraqi. But still, 
I lived in a big house. My cousin said to me, my cousin's in Perth, he said to me, when we come to your house, we think we're coming to a palace. Because they lived in the in in the in, in small apartments that were given to them as refugees, whereas I lived in a normal home. Mm-hmm. But they they thought it was a palace because, relatively speaking, it was very large. And so, did you still have family back in Palestine? Uh, extended family. the The village was destroyed. They dynamited it. It's terra nullis, um, a land with no people for a people with no land. Your listeners can relate to that because of Australia. So colonization of Australia, the colonizers basically said there are no people. The Aborigines were flora and fauna. Yeah. And so, so when, when the settlers came to the Palestine, when they colonized the Palestine, to, to make it as though there were no people, they, they would attack villages in small towns, massacre uh, they, there were several massacres. N- not all towns were massacred, but there were sev- there were enough massacres to scare people off the land. And so they attacked uh, the village of Ain Ghazal, where my father was born near Haifa, and then they dynamited it. And when they dynamited, they planted pine plantations, so you can't find the village anymore. Mm. And when I went to the Palestine, won a Rotary scholarship and went to the Palestine to teach at the university there. It took me a couple of goes to find the village because it's, again, it's terra nullis. Uh, the village never existed, according to the uh, Israelis. My father, unlike many of his kin relatives, his mindset was about education. Mm-hmm. And also, he, because he married an Iraqi woman, the ground under his feet didn't shake so much. He had a sturdy pillar to hang on to, which is my mother. She grew up in a relatively affluent house, well-educated family that was not affected by war. Mm. And so we grew up, as I mentioned earlier, in a relatively palatial house. We had ample access to education, hence my English, uh, and therefore I am an academic right now. Um, I'm um, a senior lecturer. So we had um, access to good food, good accommodation, and good education. Again, all goes back to my mother. Other descendants of refugees to this day don't ha- didn't have access to that. To this day, they are struggling. To this day, without nationality or passport. He um, he did a, a BSc, a bachelor's degree, then a master's degree and a PhD. But degrees don't does do not mean a person's educated. Yeah. My father was also well read. He th- and that's where his education. When I say my father is educated, that's what I mean. He's well read, and he always gave us books. So he discouraged us from watching TV, television. And he encouraged us to read books. And growing up in Iraq, we didn't have a lot of access to, to English books. And therefore, I, I, for example, uh, the Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, I would have read that three, four times. Right. Because the library in the house was, that's what we had. So you would reread the book. And every time I read it, I discovered new things. I learned new things about the book. I really enjoyed rereading it. So yes, we were highly educated, uh, and my father encouraged us to read, mm. and and that's what helped uh, throughout my life. 
my next question was going to be what sort of books did you have access to and what did you what well, did you initially, read? Well, uh, initially, initially, um, uh, children's novels, and then I got into Agatha Christie. Okay. Actually, Asimov sci-fi, um, then Agatha Christie, and then The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> uh, that was that was one of my favorites too. I've read it about ten times. As you would. Uh, so I've I've read almost all of Agatha Christie's books, all of them. Uh, uh, Asimov, I don't know if I've read all of He He was very prolific, but I, I read many of his books, as well as many other uh, books and novels. Dickens, I read a, uh, a lot. Uh, poetry, I mm-hmm. read a lot of, I, I like um, um, 16th, 17th, 18th, and early 19th century poetry. Really enjoyed that. And and some American poets, early, early 19th century, late 18th um, century. We listen to a lot of Western music. And the reason for that, again, it goes back to my father. And it goes back to my father marrying an Iraqi woman. And the ground, I talked about the ground shaking beneath your feet. Colonialism is shell-shocking. It's gut-wrenching. And most of my father's kin are shell-shocked. Whereas my father applied for and received a scholarship to do a master's and a PhD at Birmingham University in the UK. Mm-hmm. And that's how we ended up in the, United, in the United Kingdom. And this is where this English is from. Okay. And that's how I ended up reading Agatha Christie, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay. That's how come I listened to the Ramones and Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and, and many other, even Glenn Campbell's God Help Me. <laughs> oh, please, listeners, do not crucify me. Yes, I listened to Glenn Campbell's. A variety of music. So when your father moved to, um, got his scholarship in Birmingham, you moved, the whole family moved with him? Yes. So he got his visa on his lycée passé. My father does not have a passport. He died without nationality. But the through the Iraqi government, uh, he, he got a, um, a visa to the UK in his identification papers, which, are, which is called a lycée passé, with my mother and four of us. And we all tripped to the UK and um, we spent um, seven, eight years there so that my father can do his PhD. Okay. And my mother had her MSc, Masters in Biochemistry, both of them biochemists. Okay, so how old were you at that time? Uh, from nine to 15, I would say, 15, 16, I returned to Iraq, I would say, a long time ago. And how was your experience, of, I mean, at that age of England? N- not good, not mm-hmm. good. It was the 70s, um, the National Front was very prolific, oh, right, yeah. and uh, we were the only two coloured kids in the school. I got beaten up about once a week. It was uh, not a pleasant time. And my father, seeing my father um, being mistreated, I was cogent enough to, to know when my father's being abused for no good reason. I can only tell you about my experience yes. as a child. All I can tell you is about school. I can tell you about going home from school and, and trying to get home as quickly as possible so I don't get um, accosted en route. Um, so, but, but also, let's not forget, I learned about Dickens. I, 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 a teacher gave me a poetry book at the time, right. the English poetry of children's verse, which got me started. 
let's not forget about the literature. Let's not forget about me learning about Christianity and Judaism, which combined with Islam, and 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 it it, it really broadened my mind. Yes, there were terrible times, but I also learned a lot, and it held me in good stead at this time in my life because mm-hmm. I wouldn't be where I am today, and I certainly would not be a, have the agency and be cogent enough to speak to you right now without the yeah. English and education. So what do you think was the biggest, uh, I don't know, lesson that you got from that, that time of your life? Stand up for yourself. Mm-hmm. Don't lie down and play dead. That's what I did. I would just curl up into fetal position and get beaten up. That's not the way to go. Stand up, speak up, say back off. There's no need to do this. Uh, it's inappropriate. And and the right to resist. You have to, I mean, if you're being dehumanized, as any person, male or female, of any faith, of any ethnic group, if you're being dehumanized, stand up for yourself. Do not accept abuse. And bear the consequences, I suppose. Yeah, yeah well, that, I mean, that's an important lesson, isn't it? For... I've, that's, that's watching my father being abused. He never stood up for himself but I guess he was shell-shocked he was he was he was shaken colonialism is terrible it's it's it as I said earlier it's gut-wrenching and so watching how my father was treated has affected me greatly I want to ask you a question about the lycée passé yeah because even so even though you were born in in Iraq you still couldn't get access to no they don't you don't get Iraqi nationality the idea was that Palestine would be liberated from the colonial state of Israel and Palestinians would go home. And my father, to this dying day, never gave up on that notion that we would go home. Right of return is mm-hmm. very important for, for Palestinian refugees. Of course, the settlers, the state of Israel, cannot accept that because it would dilute the ethnicity or the religious... Um, it would go against their, their policy of... Well, it, it's enshrined the law. Uh, Israel is a Jewish state, so any non-Jew... It's a racist state, so any non-Jew cannot... That's racism. If, if, you, if you're not Jewish, you're not allowed to go to, to live in, in Palestine. I won a Rotary scholarship and I was detained for seven-hour interrogation at the Allenby Bridge. The Allenby Bridge is the bridge between Jordan and the West Bank of the Palestine. And it was built by General Allenby in, in the First World War. And people think there's a Palestinian authority, but actually Israel controls everything. As you cross the bridge, the Israelis detain you. And then you see the Palestinians. So the Palestinians live in cantons, live in mm. townships controlled by the Israelis. So to answer your question, right of return, it's not possible. They thought I was going back, but I told them I'm just here to donate my time. I've got a Rotary, Rotary Peace Scholarship and I'm here just to lecture at the university, unpaid. No, no, you've come here to, to work. Well, they're not paying me a salary. I'm not actually an employee of the university. I'm employed in a university in Melbourne. And of course, they, they have good contacts with Australia. While they detained me for seven hours, they would have been contacting the authorities here mm-hmm. and checking me out, I'm sure. And then they released me after seven hours in the middle of the night, and I had to find my own way into the West Bank at the time. So that was the time when you returned, you, first time you went to Palestine? Yes, that was the first time I, I returned to Palestine, and I, I wanted to donate my time. I wanted to show solidarity 
because the Palestinians feel isolated and the world doesn't care by and large. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to find my father's village. Mm-hmm. Very important. And I, I, when I found it, I felt complete. I really felt whole. And I felt that my work here was done. I, I'm not being negative, but that's how I felt at the time. Yeah. So how did you go about finding it? Like, What information did you have? I had no information whatsoever. However, I knew the village was near Haifa. So I passed the checkpoints, got into Jerusalem, uh, took a bus to Haifa. Of course, there was an incident on the bus. The Israeli, uh, the young Israelis, the guns everywhere. Mm. Can you imagine M16s, young people, 18, 19, carrying, even young women. These guns are are big and heavy and these, these young petite women carrying these M16s and they're very they can be very aggressive very aggressive one girl accosted me she wanted to look into my backpack on the bus but she was very abusive and she had the point of her M16 sitting on my on the shin of my foot and I'm saying to her you're hurting me could you please lift your weapon off my shoe she just ignored me it's just intimate because I'm I'm Arab. They just ignore you. Anyway, I I took the bus to Haifa. Once I got to the bus station, I found an Arab and I said, "Where's the Arab quarter?" So the Arabs live in a, a place called Khalisa, mm-hmm. which basically looks like Amman. But when you look at the, across the street, you see the settler houses, the Westerners, and they basically look like houses in Australia. So I got into Khalisa as soon as I stopped stepped off the bus, I saw a small shop and I walked into the shop and just bought a few things and I spoke in Arabic to this guy who spoke Arabic. They, they were very concerned, you know, they're very uh, suspicious, they're scared I could be a stooge or something. Mm. I just explained who I am and I said, I'm looking for An Ghazal, my father's village. And I said, yeah, we can help you. My father did have a longing to go back and he forbade us to get other nationalities. For example, my okay. older brother could have become a British citizen. He was 10 years in the UK. When we came back to Iraq in 1980, he stayed on mm-hmm. in the UK. And he could have had British, the green card or British citizenship. But my father said no, because the notion was to go back to Palestine. But it was a pipe dream. And so my generation, we know it's a pipe dream. Well... I will come to that in a moment. This is not a total pipe dream. But for the way his generation were thinking about it through armed struggle, through liberation, we knew it was not going to happen because Israel is backed by the West. The West funds and arms Israel. Whereas we are, our armies, there's no comparison. We, it's, it cannot be liberated through violence, through war. And so we didn't have that intrinsic longing but we are active in the sense that we educate people and this is this interview is is part of that educating people about apartheid so what we see now is all we want is that apartheid racist state to be removed much like south africa Mm -hmm. and that's how we see the liberation of the palestine that's how we see right of return equal education for all equal access to resources for all, freedom of movement, dignity, humanity for everyone, rather than a settler group and an indigenous, humiliated, maligned, mistreated group. So 
when I came, got back to Iraq, my Arabic was in a poor state. Okay. So I had to really struggle in high school. And I didn't do well in my bachelor's degree. I ended up in agriculture school, mm-hmm. which I hated with a passion. Oh, my Lord, I could not wait to finish so how did you get into that? Like, What drew you to that, that field? Well, nothing drew me into it. In Iraq at the time, you get your, your grades, and the grades go into a computer. And the computer says, look, um, your grades allow you to enter these specialities, these, these areas. And out of the areas that were uh, offered to me, I chose agricultural science. But I, I did not enjoy it at all. I did not enjoy it. And it also was a time of war, the Iraq-Iran war. Oh, yeah, of course. So yeah. we, we had no trips, no parties. Uh, it was it was not, not a, a really exciting time to be a young person because of the war effort and people getting killed and Scud missiles and... and people dying yeah so it wasn't a really pleasant time once you graduated um what did you end up doing right so once i graduated i always knew that i was interested in the sciences so i ended up in a in a research facility undertaking agricultural research but i still was not enjoying agronomy much because i wanted to do something within a building rather than than out in the paddock so i I gravitated towards post-harvest, processing, storage, product development, food, rather than pre-farm gate production. And so that's how I ended up in the field that I am in today, which is food science. So why didn't I enjoy? I was always different. I read Agatha Christie. I read, as I said, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I watched Western movies. I listened to Western music, whereas everyone around me was from rural areas they mm-hmm. did not speak english their their um ways that they communicated were different yes by that time i'd learned arabic fluent enough to converse but my mental mentality and way of thinking was totally different mm. uh, and as such you don't end up with friends um, you don't end up with friends. So four years of university without friends uh, was was rather difficult, as you, as you may uh, appreciate. But it's still, I, I got a degree, which was a platform for bigger and better things. I did not enjoy it at the time, but it's something you need to go through. I achieved it. It's done. I've moved on. So I went into the research council, the Baghdad Research Council, and undertook research in agronomy. But then the 1990s war happened, and I was sitting in the garden thinking about Kuwait and, and the outrageous, our outrageous action in invading Kuwait and, and really upsetting the, uh, it was a, a principality or monarchy, whatever it was at the time, but it was just such an outrageous act of gratuitous violence that was really, there was no need for it. And so in 92, Portal opened. Portal opened and with my laissez-passe, I crossed into Jordan. You can't, you can't go into Jordan uninvited because you, you don't have a passport. You have a laissez-palestinian, mm. uh, laissez-passe. But I, I, I managed to get into Jordan where I stayed for eight months, most of it illegally. I just dropped out of, just went underground as, as they say 
so avoiding the police, avoiding the authorities, but accessing the Australian embassy. Okay. And I applied for a skilled migrant visa uh, using my bachelor's degree. And of course, with this English and um, two years of experience in research, I got a visa to Australia. And that's how I ended up. Uh, I arrived in on the 19th of May, 1993 in Sydney. I ended up in Sydney and I had no money. I had $200 in my pocket. I didn't know which way was up. Imagine coming out of a war zone. You haven't seen the supermarket. I mean, I saw a supermarket in the 70s in the UK, but living in Iraq, in a war zone, and suddenly trying to understand how Woolworths and Coles works and how the mm. trains work and how the buses work. And, and also my English was so good, I, I got into potholes because my mentality was Arabic and my mouth, I spoke well. Mm-hmm. And so when I opened my mouth, Arabic idioms and, and things came out. And so you get in trouble for that. <laughs> and so it was a quick learning process. And I knew early on that I needed, my degrees were worthless here. Mm-hmm. I knew early on. So I needed degrees from Australia. So I got into a master's degree straight away at the University of New South Wales. And I achieved that. And I actually published a scientific article from that master's. And then I got odd jobs here and there just to keep body and soul together. And I must commend the social net in Australia, the Centrelink at the time, providing me with money. Uh, that really helped me keep body and soul together. Yeah. And also HEX uh, to pay for my master's degree. All these things kept me afloat. I mean, I was down and out. There were days I had $10 to my name. Absolutely. Uh, not much sleep, studying and working. But all of that helped me get on my feet again. And one thing led to another. So a two-week contract became a three-month contract, three-month contract, three-year contract, then on to a permanent position and so on. And that's how I got to where I am today. Mission Employment uh, used to run courses to teach you how to build a resume. I didn't know what a resume was. Right. I, I didn't understand what an interview was. So uh, at the time, there was VHS and video cameras, and they'd mm-hmm. sit you in front of the video camera, you do mock interview. I'd never heard of such a thing. What is an interview? Uh, you just right. told there's a job, and you go and present yourself, and you're in. Who interviews? So we, 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 we learned about interviews. So the salvos always give money to the salvos. Social network, uh, I don't mind paying taxes because it, it's helping some other new starter somewhere else um, get on with their lives. So yeah, it was uh, very good for me. Were there any difficulties or challenges in studying here versus, like, was it drastically different from your academic study in Iraq? Oh, totally, totally. Uh, heaven and earth, totally. Uh, walking, talking, body language, facial features. I remember the first time Professor Ken Buckle, I was late for his lecture in Iraq. If you're late, you don't go into the lecture. Mm. So I sat down on the steps outside the lecture and went pondering what to do. And then I saw these kids keep walking in. I thought, hello, they're late and they're walking in. So I got up timidly and walked in, sat at the back. And it was fine. There was, mm. he, didn't, he didn't have a go at me. And, so, and then I learned uh, that it was okay. And so and I actually wrote him a poem. To, to, right. I was very intimidated by Professor um, 
Ken Buckle, any of his relatives or friends that are listening to this, he's a lovely, lovely man. <laughs> he is, I'm say, I say that sincerely. Um, he's still with us. He's well retired now. He's still with us. I, I saw him two, three, four years ago at a, at a conference. Uh, yes, I wrote him a poem to say how I felt at the time. Did you get a reaction from him? Uh, he said I had poor English. I thought that was outrageous. You know, just, oh, really? he, said, he said my English was poor. Really? That was his only comment. I thought it was a fantastic poem <laughs> maybe he was maybe he's probably a bit shocked perhaps he was he was he, I, he'd never received the poem and a frank and fearless poem he'd never received one um, the opening verse at first sight sir i believed your force of evil with intent to confound <laughs> oh, right. so that was the opening gambit and so uh, but at the end i said please forgive any trespass from a, such a sightless hound and so through the poem I explained what I was going through, my mental state. Mm. But at the end, I, 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 I think, I believe that I, will, I came to the right place mm. in space and time. And I, I conveyed that to him in the poem. So after you graduated in Australia, what did you do then? So when I, I uh, did my master's degree, I got some work in the industry to get some industrial experience. It's very important if you're going to go into academia, you actually have uh, living experience in the food industry. So I went into, I worked as a quality control officer in a food processing plant, and that's how I gained my industrial experience. And after that, I thought I'd better get on and do my PhD. So I applied for a scholarship to do a, a doctorate in post-harvest grain processing, which is what I enjoy and do today. And what made you uh, choose that particular field? Or was it something you, you were, had developed an interest in? Well, uh, as I mentioned er earlier, I did a degree in agronomy. So grain is my game. That's, mm -hmm. that's, I think grain is very sexy and, and that's, that's what I enjoy. So wheat, barley, a sorghum. And um, I didn't really uh, enjoy the pre-farm gate production side of it, but I was really interested in the biochemistry of the post-farm gate storage and processing side of, of uh, grain. And that's what I specialized in. I mean, I could bore you <laughs> with the uh, rheology of making dough out of uh, wheat flour for uh, pan bread or flatbread or chipatis, but I won't. <laughs> but it's, it's all very interesting and there's a lot of chemistry involved. In terms of, like, in your first years living in Australia, did you find it hard to adapt to life here, or was it fairly similar to your, what you'd experienced in England? No, it's totally different. And and please, please remember what I'm about to say. Put a caveat on it because my experience in England was as a child. Yeah. Whereas my experience in Australia was an, as an adult. So that's that's primal here, but also mentally. My English was so good that I communicated well. There wasn't that separation usually new migrants have because of their lack of vocabulary. And I often got in trouble for that because I would express myself in ways that weren't deemed totally suited to this society and environment mm -hmm. because of my Arabic uh, experience. And, and, and you learn to adjust to the nuances, to, to look out for the facial features and, and mm -hmm. body language. For example, I find people, when they're stressed, they smile. 
and I often think we're talking about something seriously. Why are you laughing? Why are you why are you giggling and smiling? Well, I, I say that to my wife as well. I, I don't get that. I don't understand. You should you should have a solemn face right now. <laughs> but that's that's the Australian way. That's the Western way. And and you learn these small things, and you need to adapt as well. Talking about racism, talking about colonialism, apartheid, by and large, people feel very uncomfortable. There are notable exceptions, and you have to choose your audiences carefully. Uh, I didn't know that initially. I come from a culture, how are you? Oh, my auntie died last week, and my second cousin's got cancer, and my third cousin got taken away by the security police, and oh, woe betide us. Whereas here you say, I'm good. I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for asking. How are you? In relation to Palestine, by and large, I don't think people really understand what's going on. By and large, as a state, we are supportive of Israel. By and large, people are against apartheid. I don't believe they fully comprehend that apartheid is practiced in Israel. Uh, So by and large, people will tell you there is a a war or fight going on in Israel, but they don't understand the disproportionality Mm -hmm. of the forces involved, that Israel is Western-backed, that it is a colonial state, that there is a worldwide effort, the boycott, divestment, and sanction against Israel to shut apartheid down, to shut racism down to stop this colony of mistreating the indigenous people. I don't think, by and large, uh, the Australian public is aware of this. However, the Australian public were very, very active back in the 70s and mm-hmm. 80s in the anti-apartheid movement. And I can say categorically that without the general public in Australia, the, Uni- the United Kingdom, the USA, Canada, New Zealand, specifically New Zealand, if they had not marched, boycotted, Nelson Mandela and the African National Council would still be designated as terrorists. I should ask you just to explain a bit more about your own activism, what you've been doing, I guess. So so having having agency and being cogent and proficient in, in the English language, it puts you in a position where you're able to undertake advocacy. So we undertake non-political, non-religious activity, advocacy work uh, in support of the Palestinian people. And, and this work should be done in, for any group uh, that has been maligned, mistreated, downtrodden. In this case, we're talking about Palestinians, and so we are trying to educate the general public about apartheid, Israeli apartheid, about racism, colonization, how the indigenous people of the land are colonized, maligned, mistreated, and, and, and tagged, in this case, Palestinians as terrorists and troublemakers. I just want your, your listeners to know, the settler has many of them are dual citizenship. Some of them have three, four passports. They can go anywhere in the world mm. they want to, whereas the indigenous people can't go. They're, 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 they are in open prisons, in cantons, living in, in areas which surrounded by Israeli settlements. They've got nowhere to go. And their access to land, water, electricity, education, freedom of movement is greatly curtailed by the settler state. 
And this, in this day and age, is unacceptable. We cannot accept that because we are an enlightened people today. We cannot accept mistreatment of any minority uh, on religious grounds, on ethnic grounds, on gender grounds, on sexuality grounds. We cannot accept that today. And so we have to call out Israel on the basis of apartheid. And not, this is not Adele talking. No. This is Amnesty International. This is Human Rights Watch. When I was in, in Palestine, when I got my Rotary um, uh, scholarship, I noticed that the lecturers stayed at the university during the whole week and only went home on the weekend, which is Friday, even if they lived 20 minutes away. That's because of the Israeli checkpoints. Because if the Israelis close the checkpoint, the lecturer cannot come back and give a lecture. That was in the, in the late 90s, 2009, 2010, uh, when, when the internet lecturing wasn't so good. I mean, today it's different. But in those days, the lecturers had to stay at the university, live in the dorms, which mm. is outrageous. Why? Mm. Yeah. Why would you be? Why can't you be with your family during the week? Because of apartheid, because of, of the checkpoints and the racism. And so Queensland, is that where you met your wife? Yes. So not only did I get a PhD, um, I met Charlotte, uh, my wife, and... Um, I wouldn't be where I am today without her. So she's a wonderful woman, and um, I, I am I'm I'm very indebted indebted to her. And I'm not saying that because I've got a microphone uh, stuck uh, under my nose. So how did you how did you meet? Well, she was a colleague in Gatton College in in Queensland, country Queensland. Uh, we were friends for ten years. We were very close friends. Uh, we were well, like brother and sister, really, for a long, long, long time. And uh, she opened up her home to me. Uh, there was always a cup of tea and a meal uh, at a time when I was very lonely. Um, in Gatton, you can imagine, there wasn't any, eth not many ethnics at the time. Finding people to talk about the things that I'm interested in talking about were few and far between. And um, I always found uh, Charlotte very welcoming there was always a cup of tea and a meal at her house and we were exceptional friends very close nothing untoward just close buddies and uh, people th were thinking we were having an affair but there was nothing nothing like that at all yeah and that continued for about 10 years until Finally, the penny dropped and uh, things got a bit more intricate after that, to put it delicately. And uh, I finally uh, proposed marriage. I was very um, smart. I did something, excuse me, uh, I think spectacular. Uh, excuse <laughs> if even if I say so myself. I had um, a meeting with the Iraqi cultural attaché in Canberra. I was trying to attract the Ministry of Higher Education money to a... Uh, an Australian university that's postgraduate students so we had I had a meeting and so Charlotte and I and we went to Canberra together and uh, I, I said to her I've got to show you the parliament so I'd been to the parliament before and I'd like to uh, we went into the uh, parliament and and there was Palmer speaking uh, the uh, Australia party what's his name um, oh Clive Clive Palmer was speaking. So Charlotte was very impressed um, with that. And then I showed her around the different parts of the parliament, especially the Magna Carta. She's, she's very interested in, 
in English um, history. And I don't know how I kept her busy, but I went down to the florist. This is the parliamentary. This is the florist for the prime minister and, <laughs> and the ministers and all the all the federal government. And I said to her, look, I need a bouquet of flowers and, and a vase and something nice. And I remember she charged me $160 for for the um for the flowers there was 12 red roses uh for 160 dollars in a red vase and i said to her i'd like them delivered to the roof of the parliament of course today for security reasons you cannot go on the roof there was a mm. grass lawn on top of the roof of the parliament and there was a viewing panel so that where you can view the surroundings you can walk on the roof and in those days and i remember the florist says go go because uh, i was having trouble paying she said no go and i said you don't know me from a bar of soap i can <laughs> i can i can take your flowers and disappear and i insisted on paying so i did manage to pay in the end anyway i had charlotte on the roof of the parliament otherwise engaged and suddenly the 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 florist turns up with a bouquet of flowers and I say to her, will you marry me on top of Parliament House? I thought that was pretty spectacular yeah. story uh, to tell, and um, uh, which is tr it's tr also true. It happens to be true. So that's, that's how I proposed to Charlotte. And we married in Western Australia, and, and it was, uh, I, I, Charlotte arranged it, of course. It's all good now. We're, we're together <laughs> yeah. after, after many years. Yeah, well, that's a that's a fantastic story, actually. Yeah. So you uh, would you say you're you are a bit of a romantic at heart? I would say not. Unfortunately, <laughs> I think Charlotte deserves better. But she uh, accepted me as her husband, and she's got to live with that decision. I do try. Of course, I am trying as well. I'm a very trying person. I've seen a lot in life, and I've come through a lot. And of course, that reflects in my personality and and my relationship with my wife. But um, I do try to make amends and I do try to make her laugh on occasion and mm -hmm. surprise her. And it hasn't been easy for her. I've always said to her she should have married somebody from the Lockyer Valley. Uh, but um, she chose to marry me. And there it is. What brought you to Tasmania, actually? Uh, a big promotion and lots of money. So, <laughs> so to be frank, and also Tasmania is a beautiful place. And I must commend the university and the department. My manager is fantastic. Professor John Bowman is, is really good. And the faculty, um, many, many people uh, within the department, really supportive. Yeah, it's, it's a good place to work. I've done very well. And how long have you been here now? Uh, I've been here almost three years. So May... This year, uh, 2022, will be three years. Do you find any noticeable differences in the people here compared to other parts of Australia where you've lived? I think people know each other here a lot better than other states. Everybody knows everybody here. So yes. you, you really have to be nice to everybody. Not that, <laughs> not that one shouldn't. We should always be nice to people. But uh, you have to be especially aware of this, that, that everybody here knows everybody, which in a way is good because if you need to meet someone, there's always access to them. Access to politicians is a lot easier. Access to the media is a lot easier. And so, um, and, and people give you the opportunity um, to express, as, as is happening in this interview, to, to express yourself. Yeah. <laughs> 
when I went into your office, I did see something that aroused my curiosity, and you, you started to tell me a story about it. And I saw that you had a, a hawthorn scarf. Yeah. And I, I was wondering what the story was behind that. Oh, thank you. That's an excellent question. So the, <laughs> the, the great David Parkin, I, I don't mind uh, dropping a name here. The great David Parkin uh, just arrived in Melbourne. And I met David Parkin, who is a gentleman. I, I love that man. He's he's. Uh, and I should just add for context: David Parkin was the coach of Hawthorne at that time. I I don't remember exactly. It was before my time in Australia. Okay. He was well retired by then. He's a, a well-known ABC broadcaster. And also, he's a gentleman, and and is uh, a gentleman and an academic as well. At mm-hmm. university, university lecturer and a wonderful man. I found him very, very nice and very welcoming. And I, I was in Melbourne and I needed to choose a, a, a team mm-hmm. uh, to support, to barrack for a team. <laughs> and I always barrack for the underdog. That's why I support the Palestinians. Plus, I'm, I'm Palestinian. And so Hawthorne was a wooden spooner at the time. And for those of you that, that don't know Aussie rules, a wooden spoon is at the bottom of the ladder. They just and so I, I supported them and and David Parkin used to slip me um, free tickets to the mm. football, which was very nice of him. That's how I know David Parkin. But how did you meet him in the original? I met him at Deakin University. Ah. Yeah, he was a lecturer there. He's a very astute and educated commentator. A gentleman. A gentleman. I was very impressed with this person. Very interesting. And so you did go to some games. You did use the Oh, tickets. right. I know where this is going. <laughs> so, yes, I did up to a point. This is way before um, I, I got involved with my uh, wife, uh, Charlotte. I was dating uh, a wonderful lady, and we were in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Uh, David had just given me two tickets to the football, and I said to this lady, who shall remain unnamed, we need to go to the football now. And she said, "No, it's 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 raining." I said, "No, it's just spitting. We just it was cold Melbourne day, and she did not want to sit out in the open. She wanted to go to a warm restaurant somewhere and have a meal, and I wanted to go to the football, and she adamantly said no. And so it was a choice between upsetting the date or not going to the football. Um, you may argue I jumped the wrong way. <laughs> However, history." revisionist history however uh, what is done is done I of course I complied and went to the restaurant where it was nice and warm we had a meal unbeknownst to me David Parkin was sitting behind two empty seats (laughs) and I never saw another ticket after that I did go a begging and saying please I I had no choice. I was with this woman and she wouldn't go. And please forgive me, I, the great David Parkin, please. But no, there was no recompense. That was it. No more tickets for Adele Yusuf. It was all over. It dried up. I think some will have empathy for me. Some will not. <laughs> some will think this is an gracious transgression against the great David Parkin. And I might tend to agree with them. But it's in the past now. I'm a reformed character. <laughs> so do you still follow Hawthorne now? I, 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 um, I, I still support them, but not so much. I'm, I'm um, just busy with work and and don't I don't have the access to the football as I as I used to. of course when they win when they lose yes but blow by blow no 
do you have any hope for the future? Absolutely. Absolutely. The hope is apartheid and racism will go away. Once that will happen, people will have the right to return to their homes. There'll be free access to movement, education, resources, electricity, water, land. The guns will go away. And you think this might be a pipe dream, but it's not, because I'm about to give you an example. The example is the Crusades. Now, the Crusades is exactly like colonial Israel today. Armies came from Europe. They attacked, they raped, they pillaged, they murdered. However, when the armies went home, the Franks, the Anglos, the Saxons settled in places like Ramallah, Bethlehem, uh, around Jerusalem and now you find blonde blue-eyed people they look you're totally European but they're Palestinian so they were accepted and absorbed into the society now my contention is much like present South Africa those Westerners that must have apartheid cannot live without apartheid, can go back to Europe. And those Westerners that accept freedom of movement, right of return, equal access to education, health, can stay. And I'm sure the country can absorb everybody. There is enough room for everyone, but without racism, without apartheid, without murder and killing. I need your listeners to know that on average, two Palestinians get killed a week, day in, day out land gets appropriated, homes get demolished, people get mistreated. While I was there, a student was killed by the Israelis. Mm. It's not acceptable. It's not right. Justice. People need to be treated with dignity and respect. (laughs) 